0: It's episode 250 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast coming to you again on a Tuesday. And this week's extra episode comes courtesy of our Brewery Accelerator event that took place last week in Portland, Oregon. This was the 11th edition of the Brewery Accelerator. And over the years, we've brought together experienced brewery operators along with respected industry pros to help breweries and planning and young breweries explore, define, and achieve their brewery goals. Over the years, it's been really, really rewarding to, uh, to connect with brewers in this early stage of their brewery journey. And one of the recurring panels we do at each of the events focuses on the technical approaches to trendy styles. At last week's event in Portland, we tapped some leaders from the Oregon brewing world to share their insights into making beers that we might classify today as trendy, quote unquote. And they're folks you know, you're probably familiar with, as we've talked with a few of them in, uh, on the podcast before. Ben Edmonds, brewmaster at Breakside Brewery, Sam Pecoraro, head brewer at Von Ebert, and of course, James Dugan co-founder and creative director of Great Notion. This episode was recorded live in the brew house of Great Notion's Northwest Portland production brewery with questions from attendees and fellow presenters. And in fact, it's the first time uh, we've recorded an episode of the podcast in front of a live audience. It only took us six years to get there. It's a fascinating dive into creative process along with technical development, and we are excited to share it with you. But before we jump into that, I want to tell you about next Tuesday's episode, a special audio ask me anything style episode with my friend, Neil Fisher of Weldworks Brewing. For this and future Tuesday episodes that I'll announce soon, we want your audio questions about anything brewing related. For Neil, that could be questions about Juicy Bits, Hazy IPA, Medianoche, Barrel-Aged Stout, or even their Spaghetti Goza, if you really want to make me cringe. But rather than just sending me questions to read, I want you to record yourself asking the question in your voice. Send me that audio file. Just introduce yourself, where you're from, ask your question, email me the audio file. I'll choose the best and most interesting and then play those for Neil to answer. My email, of course, is Jay Bogner at beer and That's J-B-O-G-N-E-R. At beerandbrewing.com. You know, of course, just about every smartphone today has some means of recording an audio snippet and sending it via email. Uh, We've got more great brewers lined up for these episodes in the future. Make sure you're subscribed to our email newsletter at beerandbrewing.com. Stay on top of future guests and opportunities to send us more questions. But I think it's really be really fun to uh, go through this kind of Q&A process where rather than me asking the questions, you get to ask those questions. So for everyone who's ever told me, "Oh, I just wish you'd ask so and so about this thing." Here is your Chance, go back and listen to that Neil episode, uh, or the uh, episode one hundred that he did with Corey King. If you if those sparked any questions for you, here's your chance to drill down and ask Neil directly. Um, you know, send those to me quick. Uh, we're gonna put this up, like I said, two weeks from uh, today when this uh, episode goes live. So try to get those questions to me asap, uh, and then we will get those. Edited and I'll get in front of Neil next week and we'll get some questions answered and then put it out there on the podcast feed for all of you all. We're going to jump into technical approaches to trendy styles in just a sec, but first step into the modern era of brewing. Acubrew presents a game changing fermentation monitoring system, giving brewers unprecedented real time insight into yeast health and activity by simply mounting a sensor to a port. Brewers get real-time information through the AccuBrew app, tracking sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity. And just one AccuBrew sensor protects every tank in the event of a glycol system failure. Get your hands on a tool that will help you deliver your best brew every batch AccuBrew has your back because it was designed for you, the brewer, by brewers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also, this episode is brought to you by Rahr Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, Rahr Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere, now offering Dextrin Malt to help you boost mouthfeel and haze in your IPA. Or to show off a jiggly foam stand on a Pills. Available exclusively through BSG at bsgcraftbrewing.com. And of course, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real world. Field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the total glycol system design experts today at gdchillers.com. Welcome to the Trendy Styles panel of our Brewery Accelerator here in Portland, Oregon. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm excited. We are in the back in the brew house of Great Notion Brewing. And uh, we've got an amazing lineup of talented brewers for you. Ben Edmonds from Breakside. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. welcome. Welcome back to the podcast. This is not your first time here on the Craft Brewing Podcast. Awesome to see everybody. Thank you. We've got uh, Sam Pecoraro from Von Ebert. Sam's also been on the podcast before. Welcome, Sam. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks
0: for uh, hosting Great Notion. This is awesome. And for the first time on the podcast, James Dugan, creative director, co-founder of Great Notion. Welcome. We have done a podcast with Great Notion before. It's true. But it was Andy Miller, another co-founder of Great Notion. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the podcast, James. Yeah. Hey, really.
2: Thank you all for being here. It means a lot uh, that you trust in, in us, you know, <laughs> come here to hear us talk. And I ho- hope
0: you've all had a great last couple of days here in Portland. My first, my first great Notion experience, we're gonna go way back now to 2016. We were doing a brewer's retreat out at uh, uh, in Astoria, Oregon. And we had somebody who couldn't make a, a seminar. We needed to fill in a seminar spot. And so Hayden, my business partner, yeah, who's from Portland originally, you know, was looking at it. it's like, how do we how do we fill this in? And uh and so you guys, great notion to just won like four months into the brewery, had just won best IPA in Portland. No offense, Ben. Um, but you had just won <laughs> or Sam, who's also I mean, everyone here has won some serious medals for their IPAs. You had just won a best best medal, uh best IPA in Portland there. And, uh, and so Hayden reached out and invited you guys out and, you know, four months in, as you were just figuring out what the brewery was, you, you came out, um, and brought some crawlers and we got to taste these beers back in 2016. I was like, this is wild. That's this cool. Is, this is something different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know Ben, you were on that tasting panel, uh, for the Oregon beer awards, right?
3: I don't,
0: I,
2: I, I don't
3: remember any of this. No, okay, yeah, this is all, this is all ancient
2: history. Ben's like, what, 2015? Yeah.
3: What? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I'll say, I, I remember tasting the first Great Notion, one of the first Great Notion IPAs that I had back at the Alberta Pub in like early 20, it, 2016, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh fuck, these guys are doing that thing. <laughs> yeah,
2: that thing. And it you know, it's, it's, a, it's dirty, a dirty, dirty word. Yeah.
3: <laughs> a, a, happy and angry simultaneously.
0: Kicking kicking the bucket forward. We're gonna talk about trendy styles today and what that is. Um when we started doing these brewer brewery accelerator events back in yeah, I guess it was twenty sixteen when we kicked those off also. Um, You know, what people thought of as trendy styles was a little different than what it looks like now. Now it almost seems like lager is a trendy style. Um, But I want to kick off the conversation here with a discussion of what, how you define what is trendy and, and trendy styles. And then how you approach how that fits into, you know, the brewery. Now, you know, with every brewery, you've got a brand, you've got, you've built up consumers. You may not have known what those were going to be when you started. You had some idea of what that might be and you knew kind of what you wanted to make. Um, you know, but you also had to develop an identity for those breweries and, you know, for your individual breweries at, you know, that, that felt germane and authentic to what you are and what you do while at the same time was embracing of people who may have a bigger or different or slightly, you know, slightly off center idea of what beer would be and what they want. Um, talk to me about how you envision that, how you fit trendy styles into what you do. I mean, I have an idea of what Great Notion does, James, because there were twelve beers with fruit on the front side of the menu, and even more on the back side of the menu that also had fruit in it. But this, so this brewery, Great Notion, is predicated on that kind of progressive approach to beer and building beers that are very flavor-forward.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Jamie. Um, we're we're pretty fortunate in the situation that we're in. Um, out, the original location of Great Notion is over on the other side of the river on Alberta Street. And that was our where we started. And it's this little seven barrel brew pub, you know, um, that we were able to take over and experiment and come up with what we thought would be something exciting for Portland beer drinkers. Of course, things evolve over time, right? And fruit beer has gotten more and more popular. so. I don't know if fruit beers will ever actually go out of style, right? I mean, they've been in style long before us. Sure, I'm sure. The, <laughs> the, right? the like, Framboise
0: and Creek, and you know, I mean, these are obviously, there's a long history of fruit beer. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're really just talking about is um, making good beer, right? Making beer with the ingredients that, in, at least in the United States, um, that fit into our law, right? Like, which doesn't exist, you know, like, um, we really can kind of use any ingredients that we have, uh, to, to fill out the, the flavor wheel of, of what we're trying to produce and what
0: we're trying to create and fruit, fruit for us is a big part of that. Uh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Sam, for you guys, you know, at, with Von Ebert, Von Ebert has a very multifaceted approach. You all brew mixed fermentation beers, in fact, uh, Alma I think was a uh, craft beer and brewing beer of the year. Mixed, beautiful, beautiful mixed fermentation beer. Um, you all have won serious medals for IPA and brew very Portland. Uh, when when I say Portland, I mean you know kind of dank leaning, um, you know well structured, nicely bittered but smooth and drinkable IPAs. Um, you know, but fruit also plays a part in what you do. How do you all then think about uh, you know progressive styles and how that fits into the broader Von Ebert experience and what people, what your drinkers expect from you.
1: Yeah, I think if, first of all, I mean, trendy style. What is a trendy style? Um, I don't know. I think that's a really, really broad, uh, you know, broad term. Uh, it could be trendy for where you currently are, uh, both in time and place. Um, in Portland, uh, I think Von Ebert took a little bit different of an approach. Uh, we kind of went with what was trendy in Portland. Um, I think you know what great notion did was take a trendy style that was very trendy elsewhere and brought it to Portland Which incredible respect for that. I think you guys have done, you know, you've You've single-handedly changed the entire uh, Portland beer scene Uh, and then breakside just makes every single style on the planet all the time uh, you know Uh, perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfectly done. Um, but yeah, we, with Von Ebert, we really wanted to focus on uh, you know, what was attractive within our three favorite um, groups of beers, so mixed culture. So we're very heavily fruit focused. I think James spot on with, um, with fruit. Uh, so we, do, we focus on a lot of um, local stuff like uh, different stone fruits and berries. Uh, those tend to, to sell very well and uh, luckily have done well in competition. Um, and West Coast IPA Um, you know I think there was maybe a a little dip in West Coast IPA for a minute I think uh, Great Notion was responsible for that (laughs) Um, but uh, you know it's never really uh, fully fallen off it's it's uh, alive and well and uh, that's a big focus of ours and uh, lager fortunately Um, you know I feel like we opened up at the perfect time to really be a lager focused brewery uh, within Portland um, you know, I think that's, that's very different in other areas of the country, but uh, we're lucky enough to have a really big, uh, you know, logger backing in Portland. And, yeah, that's kind of our, our three,
0: uh, three-pronged approach, I suppose. Cool. cool. Ben, how do you guys define trendy styles for Breakside, Or do you even identify them that way? How do you, uh, how do you look at those?
3: Well, so I, think, I think the word trendy is interesting because, to me, like I think we should differentiate trend from experimentation or uh, innovation, right? Because trend implies a customer, right? The other two, experimentation, you can throw any wild thing into a beer and that can be experimentation. You can make an all Munich 3 based West Coast IPA. And that's, I mean, I suppose that's experimentation and innovative in some ways maybe not a good idea and not trendy because there's not necessarily a customer for it.
0: Munich wine? Maybe there is. I think Brad Clark has already made that, right?
3: I think Munich, maybe, well, let's we can talk about Munich malts later on. Can we do the <laughs> Munich panel later tonight? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, but, but trendy is an interesting term because it implies a customer. And I think that's a really key thing to kind of dovetail into what Sam's saying is like, is this, you have to respond to the people ar- around you in that sense. Um, and, to the degree that that corresponds with what's happening in Florida or Tennessee or Maine or Texas may your your mileage is going to vary based on on your customers and it varies across town. I mean, yeah. I can't account for the fact that when we make the same style of beer not as well as what Great Notion makes, if we make Mama Mango Bomb, which is a beer we make, which could be a Great Notion beer, it doesn't sell for us. And we're seven, eight blocks away. And so I think part of it's like your your brand, your tone, your service, your packaging, all of these things kind of build into what trends you can plug into. So for us, we try and be very mindful of that identity, you know, and it's not just what do we do well and we have to stay in our lane, but chasing a trend doesn't necessarily reap rewards for us just because someone else is successful in it. And sometimes it's actually better to let someone just across the street do that thing better so you can do your
0: thing better. How then, and maybe we'll follow up on that with you, Ben, how then does that reflect in the way that you might lean into something like fruit beer, but then put a distinct break side feel to that so that people might feel engaged with where that trend is going, um, and yet it still connects with a breakside customer.
3: Can I, re- I would friend this, like how do you not end up just making old school amber ale? Sure. Because that's what your customer's like, right? Like you're, <laughs> how do you not end is up being- Is that what in a, they want? Well, no, in a rut. Like how do you not yeah. end up in a rut, right? right? If you're like, how do you be mindful of these trends? I don't know. How do you push
0: that edge? Because you, know, you also want to you know, make sure that you are staying relevant And keeping your customers interested and not just, I mean, you know, because there's always that dynamic where you want to keep your current customers happy, but you also want to find and connect with consumers and customers that could be your customers, but might not realize yet that they want to be your customers. How do you ride that line and build those things while also building beers that feel like they're your brand?
3: Yeah, that's the nut to crack. I don't know. That's yeah, why we're talking about guy. this right now. Let's just well, dive in. Yeah, I mean it, it, phrasing it keep like pushing I, you I think that, you. that I think that's a right, like I might buy uh Charmin because I like that toilet paper brand. I'm gonna use the same amount of toilet paper roughly at age twenty-five <laughs> I as I stuff. do at age seventy five, right? <laughs> but beer 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 maybe not. Ah sorry, you know.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> can you edit that
3: (laughs) (laughs) but 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 beer is different like you're you know you we see a drop-off in consumers and I think that this to your point I think to your point Jamie is like the real question here is how do you stay relevant and trendy even if the styles you're making are not the things that like are causing generating you know 50 person lines
0: I mean, not many beers are now generating 50-person lines at all, anywhere, anytime. Um, you know, but, but figuring out a way to both respond to and incorporate some of these broader trends that are happening in beer, but finding a way to make that feel also germane and connected to your own brand, you know, that, that's an interesting challenge. How do, you all, how do you all address that, Sam?
1: We'll get to you too, James. I'm definitely not going to answer your question by what I'm about to say. But I, I, he does I, not I, like
2: Charmin, I could tell
1: you that much. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I do hope it's relevant, though. Uh, it's a, a thought I had a second ago, um, re- really reading through the noise, I think, is super important. People always ask for what you don't have on tap. So if you don't have a brown ale or an uh, imperial porter in the summer, people are going to ask for it. And we always have staff come to us and say, why, why don't we have an imperial porter on right now? like everybody's asking for it well no not everybody's asking for it you had three people ask for it and it just seems like a lot of people are asking for it if we put it on tap it would probably be the worst selling beer that uh, you know that we have all summer uh, I think that's really important to uh, kind of guide yourself or not or what do I want to say it's uh, important to not send you off in the right di- or in the wrong direction by uh, you know paying attention to that noise um, now I forgot the question, Jamie. Well, do, Sorry. You
0: know, so, so you, you see that people are responding to hazy beer. They're responding to this kind of juicy, heavily hopped, multiple dry yeah. hop, okay. intensely hop flavored beers. They're responding to, you know, kind of sweeter finishing gravity fruit beers. Um, but that's not necessarily what your typical Von Ebert customer, you know, expects out of you. How do you look at those trends try to build beers that also feel like Von Ebert, but you know, may satisfy or at least respond to, to people with a specific interest who, who are starting to enjoy those?
1: Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things. One, I think it's really important to uh, test those waters and see if your customer does want them. Um, but it's also important to not just completely change your identity every time uh, you know, a different trend is coming. Uh, I heard a, I'm sorry, I cannot remember if this was on your podcast or not. I think it was. But Ken Grossman said something really impressive, like, like he does often. He said, he uh, yeah. He said whenever, uh, throughout the years, whenever Sierra Nevada wanted to um, kind of test something completely different, they always changed the branding a little bit and made sure that they weren't tying it directly to Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And I think that's a, a really good lesson to learn is like, don't. Don't completely change your identity with one trend but you know I don't think there's any harm in you know trying to uh pretty sure he said that on our podcast yeah <laughs> I,
0: I think so yeah sorry <laughs> what do you think James I mean you guys have predicated your brand on this kind of progressive approach and people expect that creativity from you
2: yeah I mean I, th- I think a lot of it from the, from the start, like what I could recommend is, is, is really focusing on identity, right? And thinking about like, who, who are you, right? Ask yourself that question when you're laying in bed at night, who am I, right? How do, how do, what resonates within my being? What inspires me, right? What beers have excited me recently? You know, like these are the really important questions to ask yourself. And you can build just on answers to that question, right? Identity is a really important part, right? So once you figure out what you wanna be known for, you have a starting point, right? And it doesn't have to be one answer. For us, our answer was culinary inspired sours and stouts and hazy IPAs, right? So that covers a pretty broad spectrum, but it's a clear identification of our brand, right? So once you have an identity that you're confident in, you can start there, right? And it doesn't mean you're, you're stuck there. You can branch out into classic styles once you've actually gotten your, your feet on the ground and you know, you're making some money. One thing that's really important to keep in mind is the consumer, right? Like, not what they wanna drink, But it's actually up to you to tell them what they want to drink. That's your job. Because they will drink whatever you tell them is fucking awesome. (laughs) If you are excited about it, they'll be excited about it. It, Because they can learn to trust in you, right? You can become a brand that they can trust. You know, whether you knock it out of the park every time, it's not going to (laughs) happen. You're definitely going to have beers that... Didn't work out, and and that's the beauty of art, right? I mean, it's and life in general, right? We like nothing is perfect, and 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 beer is art, and um, we're creating, right? We're crafting, but an artist has to know who they are. That's the most important part of being an artist. And if you're a brewer, you're an artist. If you're a business person, your your art is business, right? And your opportunity to make a change in, in, in your neighborhood, in your city, right? You, you have an opportunity to create change. So then you have to think about, okay, I have an idea. I have an identity. I ha- I, I'm going to build a brand. So what's next, right? Art. Not art. artwork, right? You have to figure out what's your logo, right? Like, what what is your can going to look like that's super super important from the very beginning you have to have an understanding of what you're projecting your brand to be that's the that's like one of the best starting points um, is just understanding who you are who your business partners are what your company is going to push out from the very beginning into the world of this is our new brewery this is what we are about and you might not be able to afford great art to start, but I would
0: say that it's a very, very good way to spend your money on art. For for you guys, let's let's actually delve in and talk about the, the technical approaches and the way that you guys engage in this kind of creative process in testing new things, trying new things, and what that technical process looks like. As you are thinking about pushing some boundaries in the world of beer, um, where do you start? You know, if you you want to push on a, a hazy IPA, for example, um, where does you know? And even if that's not in your primary wheelhouse, but you you want to keep working in that because it's going to help you understand both ingredients, process, you know, at, you know, and engage in a conversation there. Like, you know, how do you start envisioning that kind of thing? um and then go through a process of iteration to produce you know a new ha- hazy ipa um that may be something different than what you've done before
1: yeah go and drink them uh number one I yeah mean, s- seek them out go take trips go to uh you know whatever region is making those beers the best um,
0: come right here to great notion for example yeah yeah
1: seriously i i don't think there's a a substitute for that i think reading about styles uh or reading um you know, recipes for a, a certain new trendy style, I think is a, a horrible way
0: to start out. Uh, I think you need to go and have them at the source. And that's probably true for any style of beer, whether that's lager or hazy IPA, yeah. right? Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and I don't feel like Great Ocean makes the best hazy IPAs. I definitely don't feel that way. And our team, I mean, when I, when we got started, um, I was a very active trader on beer advocate and um, learned refine my understanding of styles through trading. Um, My brother lived in Boston and would send me Hetty Topper and Hill Farmstead back in 2013. And, um, you know, like it kind of helped me to build confidence in the style here in the city uh, on the West Coast. But yeah, Sam's absolutely right. Like, just seek it out and drink it. Um, There's other people doing what you want to do um, like better than you're doing it. So find those things and try to dissect them and understand why it's better, right? Is it the salts? Is the chloride and sulfate ratio different, right? Like is the dry hopping heavier or shorter or is it the yeast, right? Like try to really get to the bottom of it. Take, take, get a can, right? And get your hydrometer out, decarb the can, take readings, right? Figure out what the final gravity of that beer is. You know, um, yeah. I've,
1: I've, I've definitely, I've definitely done that to both yeah. of these guys' beers.
3: <laughs> I'll add that I think that um, when you develop any new brand or any, you pursue a new concept, you know, it's, it's not like you get to roll this beer out and then it's, it's set in stone and done forever, right? These are, it's an iterative process and oftentimes that first iteration, that first version of uh, if we want to talk about it in, a, in the sense of a style is going to be imitative, right? You're you're going to find someone's version of this, whether they be local or regional or national, get a can of it and be like, oh well, this is cool. How do I create something that's like this? And so that's a pretty wide target. You know, you read enough, you check, you, you know, you do sneaky stuff, like take uh, hydrometer readings, ter- terminal gravity readings, people's finished beer, things like that and you shoot for this pretty broad target initially, right? And then I think the next piece on that from our end is, okay, how do we make this feel like a breakside beer? How do we make this a beer that's ours, right? And every person in this room, once you open your breweries, is gonna have a different answer to that. We like it this way, and hopefully that we like it this way is followed by because our customer likes it this way, right? We do hazy IPAs slightly drier than what Great Notion does because the Breakside consumer who wants these beers from us wants them a little bit drier. So that's like, you know, to me, sound logic. And everyone has to figure out what that personal stamp is. You can also just stay in the iterative, like kind of uh, imitative phase too. And that's not a bad thing. Like you guys were, a handful of you all were over at Breakside just now and you saw a beer called Pale 33. And I was like, yeah, that's basically a version of Pale 31 from Firestone Walker because that's an awesome (laughs) beer and they don't make it anymore. And so we wanna drink it and make it. So that's okay, like it's not a problem. And our customers aren't like, no one's coming up and wagging their finger, being like, hey, this is the least original beer you have on the tap list. Um, So I, I, but I do think that personal stamp piece to the degree, to, to answer kind of the question, like how do you do that, is going from this imitative taste, adapt, imitate, and then, put your personal stamp on. Um, But if you try and skip that first phase and just say, we're gonna knock this out of the park on round one with our own version of it, that's probably, I just don't think that's that likely.
2: Yeah, like um, industry inspiration is definitely one way to like create um, a new product. The way that I approached it when we first opened was to do it um, on like a micro scale level. I mean, we're, we're a flavor-based company uh, in a lot of ways. And so I would, I would um, start with experimenting with, um, I would buy other people's beer if I didn't have it available and just dump it in a glass and um, buy as many different extracts as I could from as many different companies to figure out what would taste good in a glass, right? Once I would figure out um, the right flavor then I would move to a corny keg, so I would take uh, five gallons out of our bright tank into a corny keg. I would dose that with um, flavor um, or weird ingredients, uh, you know, because it's very hard to add stuff to a half barrel keg. <laughs> you really can't do it. Um, I mean, you have you kind of have to shoot it in from a corny. Um, so I would I would basically pull back and forth, I'd go from a corny keg to a half-barrel keg. Um, We have a beer called Blueberry Muffin, and that that was essentially born out of that experiment of just being in the walk-in with a corny keg and blueberry puree, blueberry flavor, and moving back and forth to find the right ratio. Use it uses like
0: a dosing tank then, like a corny keg, then kind of circulate through?
2: It's just a way to get it into the tank that we can tap, Sure, uh, uh, the keg that we can tap, because we don't really serve off a corny keg. So, um, but once I figured that out, how to do it in a, in a half-barrel keg, then I actually knew how to do it in a seven-barrel batch. Um, and, and it could lead to like a full, produ- um, a, a, a full seven barrel batch and then to a 30 barrel batch. Um, so, yeah, really just innovation can start in your glass, like at home, right? Just buy some whatever IPA you want or whatever lager you want, right?
3: Yeah. And, uh, and to take it, I'll, I think there's a really practical and strategic way you can work with your suppliers on this too, which is to. When someone says, "Hey, we have this new malt, or here's a new hop, or here's a new hop product," the first question I ask, and this is you know a 30,000 barrel year level now, when we could just take it and give it a shot, is like, "Nate, tell me what name. Someone who's using this already, who's making a good beer with this? What's the representative beer that you've already that someone has already done? Put it on the supplier to, because you're going to get hit up by malt suppliers, yeast suppliers, hop suppliers, Mm -hmm. extract flavoring suppliers, processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." ask them to identify that excellent beer or brand that uses that product and then get it. Or ask them to get it for you. And they'll do it most of the time. if they don't, I don't know that I trust that necessarily. So to the degree that like, yeah, if we're talking about product experimentation, R&D in that sense, it's a really powerful tool, which is to say like, bring it to me, show me that this is a good thing. And I think that's one thing we learned maybe a little bit the hard way is it's really easy to get excited about some new hop that no one else has and you wanna buy it because no one else has used it yet. But in reality, maybe the slightly more long-term kind of high quality approach is to see who's doing it well and then learn from what they're doing, you know?
0: Now James, you're also, you know, and that works great if you're talking about more mainstream brewing ingredients that have vendors that are reaching out to you. I know you also are trying to move outside of that and incorporate ingredients that may be, you know, further afield from that, you know, what someone in the mainstream brewing world might want to provide to you. We were talking about it, you have a, you know, oat milk, uh, mango lassi, you know, beer where you are manually opening containers of oat milk because you can't find it at a normal brewing kind of industrial scale. You know, talk to me about the challenge of of diving into ingredients that are that far out of the mainstream where there isn't necessarily a a brewing provider that's going to be able to give that to you in a way that's easier to use. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about
2: like trendy styles, like go to your favorite boutique ice cream shop, you know, seriously like ice cream is an incredible way to understand flavor you know um and think of like eat it and taste it get as many samples as you can that that sound interesting to you (laughs) like
1: not not too many i (laughs) hate that the person in front of you like takes 50 (laughs) samples
2: (laughs) there's a freaking brewer in line here you won't (laughs) um but yeah um so we have a pandan beer on right now and that that came from me being at a local uh, ice cream. Pandem food.
0: beer, but it's really a Pandem hard seltzer, isn't it?
2: Yes, that's right. That's right, Jamie, it is. Are you talking <laughs> shit on seltzer? No, no, we love hard <laughs> seltzer. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, so We've that got people
0: drinking plenty of that tonight.
2: That started um, as the inspiration for using pandan started um, from an experience at an ice cream cart. And I actually worked, um, partnered with a, a local... Um, marketplace where they sourced me all these, I think I bought like 30 pounds of pandan leaves and I processed them all of them by hand with an immersion blender and it was a total pain in the ass but um, it was a really cool experience to understand what pandan is like and once I actually made the real thing, right, and understood what pandan could be in beer then I felt comfortable actually going to an extract company right? Because once you have the real thing, you don't have to really do the labor if someone else is doing it for you. And um, I have no problems with that. Um, as long as you can get the proper you know, paperwork from the flavor company, um, getting flavor information data sheets sometimes is uh, um, really challenging. They're called FIDs. The TTB is a very challenging organization to work with. Um, They're a very powerful regulatory uh, overseer of everything that you put into your packaged beer. And we had a TTB audit uh, about two months ago and it was pretty intense. And we take uh, formulas and colas, Certificate of label approvals very seriously now. And anything that we put in the beer is on the label. So like if you ever like had a beer and then you were in the bathroom, you're like, shit, it's gotta be lactose in this, right? Like <laughs> I wish they would have said it on the label. <laughs> <laughs> oof, oof, oof. Yeah, yeah. So we we we're very transparent about everything we put into the beer.
0: But I like that idea that you need to have a baseline of what the actual ingredient tastes like before you start evaluating extracts and their ability to Absolutely. capture that flavor.
2: Right, right. It's like vanilla beans are incredibly expensive, right? So like, but you have to start there. You have to know what really good vanilla beans are like. And and a lot of times there's no replacement for the real thing in a lot of cases. And yeah. and, and really vanilla beans is a great example of that.
0: Sure, sure. Sam, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, plug a line item that everybody should have if you're opening a brewery. Spend a few hundred dollars on a like micro pipette and some flasks and uh, a whole bunch of stuff to do bench trials properly. Um, I feel like that's incredibly important to uh, save yourself a lot of time and not make big mistakes. And to that, I mean, to, to James' point, it's uh, a
3: corny keg or a half half barrel with a uh, TC fitting on top that you can you know those sorts of kind of like and, and, and not a 60 barrel batch right <laughs> you know so that you can do a in small infusion things like that you know.
2: yeah but I, I just would really encourage you all to not to be afraid to to do weird stuff don't be afraid to experiment with really unusual ingredients um, because you know trends always start with someone right. That, I mean, that's just the truth. There's no denying it. Someone starts a trend like brute IPA, right? Black
0: IPA, hazy uh, Pil- pilsner easy. in the eighteen hundreds. Okay. Pilsner is a trend. Once. Some,
2: I mean, you know, smoothies, smoothie beers, right? Like, there's always going to be something that, and I keep feeling like oh, we're gonna, it's gotta it's, we're running out, right? <laughs> what what else could it be? But it is pretty cool to think about what it is going to be when we're not here anymore right 100 years from
0: now what are people going to be like what is beer going to be like sure sure ben when you go about you mentioned you want to put a stamp on it what is a? how do you define you know even in a broader kind of recipe ingredient or sensory perspective what a stamp might be like, how, well, you know, we are thinking about how do we put our own breakside stamp on this? Yeah. Like, what would be some of those parameters that you might define as you're developing it that might, you might consider to be that stamp that might represent what you are?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, because it's, it's asking about limits, right? Uh, so as a general rule with non-traditional beer adjuncts, we prefer to use the real ingredient, and if we can't get that, we'll use a puree, but we don't, we don't use extracts or essences or flavors. It's not a judgment piece, that's just, we just don't do that. And that may be limiting in some ways, in terms of the flavor factory that we have to lean on, but it also focuses our team on certain things. So that's, that's one way, you know, you put a parameter there. I'd say another thing is like, if you're a packaging brewery and say, this is going to go out to bars or retail shelves, is it shelf stable? And not in the sense of, like, it's not going to change over 90 days, but, like, is it going to explode? Is it going to poison someone? Is it food safe? Like, those basic questions are really important. So, you know, for us, we don't have a pasteurizer. Um, We don't do NA beer. We also don't do smoothie beer. Like, for those two reasons, you know, that's, like, kind of complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So a lot of these are kind of parameters, some of which are based on trying to maintain the business's solvency and not put us at overdue risk. Some of this is based on kind of philosophy and artistry. Um, The more interesting piece of it though, I would say is that like you feel like, what do you really prioritize? And for me personally, like to me, I want every single one of our beers within the bounds of what it's supposed to be. The the second you take a sip of it, you wanna crush the whole pint. I don't feel that way necessarily about like our barrel aged imperial stouts because I just want you to suck down that entire 10 ounce glass. So to me, like drinkability above all else, consumability, enjoyability, the ability to like kind of kick you out of analysis mode into pure enjoyment is like what I seek. And that's the litmus test for me, for our beers, you know, and that's not, you know, it's not necessarily about style, but it's about the end product. And if we have a West Coast IPA that doesn't deliver that, then we go back to how do we make this more I hate the word "crushable," but that's ultimately what we're talking about. It's like just wanting it to be delicious in a really, really drinkable way.
0: Sam, for Von Ebert, what does uh, what does that stamp look like as you start to you know, like develop and, and push some of these you know innovative beers that you're experimenting with and try to impart a Von Ebertness to them?
1: Yeah, so we we don't make a ton of uh, fruited beers outside of our mixed culture program. So those all tend to be uh, whole fruit that are uh, freshly harvested or recently harvested and frozen. So I don't think there's a ton of, uh, um, you know, extract or flavoring conversation there. But uh, with IPAs, certainly we, um, we, I think our stamp is never saying no to any new product. Uh, as soon as something becomes available, like uh, beta extracts, um, elbow, trialing different, um, you know, tetra extract, um, we're open to all of it. And we try and really uh, put a big emphasis on trying all of them. Uh, I I don't think that carries over into our marketing so much, but I do think that uh, we have a lot of unique things on tap. And uh, yeah, hopefully that's our, our what was it, stamp? I was gonna say footprint stamp.
0: Sure, sure. You know, some sort of through line through those beers for you. James, is there, you know, is there a through line through, uh, you know, through Great Notion that, uh, you know, where there are some parameters in the way that you brew, especially within specific categories like, uh, you know, like like a a fruited sour beer where there's going to be an expectation from that, whether that's intensity or whether there's, you know, some common flavors through those things?
2: Uh, Well, we want you to feel like you're at Willy Wonka's factory. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I remember one time, and i, I don't think this is a panel or anything, James, but you said like, and maybe we were just talking about like you just said like it's just fun, and i have always that that has reflected like that's one thing I've always thought about great notion cool. beer yep. it's like you're it's like you're just the goal is like it's just fun, like why are you not trying to have fun
2: yep, yep, and that that is our motto, keep beer fun um we we try to really keep an open mind and not have too many parameters or rules around what we do. Um, but really focus on the quality of the end and end product and and like Ben was talking about drinkability is really important. Um when you're flavoring something strongly, it can easily become distracting and and undrinkable. Yeah, so getting to a place where you can um really enjoy yourself with what you're doing with your craft. <laughs> like um, where you enjoy your job, and you feel challenged and um, excited about the beer that is in a glass in front of a customer. Like, there's nothing like that moment where you tap something for the first time. And um, sometimes, as a brewer, you're kind of like watching from behind the glass. You know, like sometimes you maybe can take some time to go out and see what people are thinking about it. But you know, nowadays, untapped is kind of the way that we um can experience uh public reception around experimentation and um things that are a little well pretty I, i'm sure we all right check on tap the, anytime a new beer goes on i mean it's it's nice it's nice to see some what some people, people may think. not
0: admit it but yeah they're probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah what does that evaluation process look like? Like how you know? So so maybe you want to try something out and you start dosing a keg and you're you know you're you're recirculating through a corny keg, adding ingredients in, you're tasting it as you go. You hit where you think the perfect level of saturation for flavor is based on on what you've got. And you want you like what's the next phase after that? Do brewers taste it? Do you put it out there to the public? And what does the feedback process then look like for you before you decide to then say? scale that and do a much larger much more significant much more risky costly you know batch of something like that
2: yeah um in the early days i would dose kegs um and um and then i just moved on to dosing seven barrel tanks um, as i got more confident in in um, my process once you put something on tap, right? Then it's up to the general public to understand if they actually agree with you or not. <laughs> you know, like you could be incredibly excited about something. You're like, "Damn, how are y'all not getting this? <laughs> this it's is the true. fucking best thing ever." What's right?
3: the beer of what's a beer from you guys over the years that like that's that been the experience
2: with? Mm. Ben popping in with those difficult questions.
0: <laughs> gonna have Ben host this next. It's gonna be amazing. Ben, I'll email you later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see. We can take the heat off you, James. Oh, yeah. Sam, what is the, what is your process, you know, innovation process look like there? You know, know, as you decide to, like, start bench Mm -hmm. testing, then kind of work through that, um, you know, and then go through that you know, process of testing something and then decide to like maybe go full on production. Because once you start packaging something, like you're into it, it better work. You know? You've know, you got a lot, much, much more invested in that at that point.
1: Yeah, this is definitely not the answer that everybody wants and probably shouldn't be the answer that I give, but we have two pretty small brew pubs. One's a 10 barrel system and a seven barrel system. And most of the time we're honestly just rolling it out. Um, That's
0: fair, yeah. Seven barrel batch, boom, see how people respond to it. If it sits there, maybe look at it again and uh, retool. Correct. Yeah, how's it look for Breakside, Ben?
3: I think that we,
0: similar, I mean, you know, I think
3: we're, the craft beer industry, for better or for worse, allows us to kind of roll these new ideas out to see how customers do it, and they pay full price for them. You know, we don't do conventional R&D the way that Campbell's you know, or Nabisco does. Uh,
0: Focus grouping everything before you uh, release a beer. Yeah,
3: exactly, and so to that degree, I think that as you, you know, you're gonna, to that degree, I think it really, you have to be mindful of what your customers are willing to kind of um, accept and tolerate within that spectrum of kind of like, the people who are walking in the door understand that part of the fun of being involved with a craft brewery, being a regular consumer of your brewery, is that they're going to get to taste what you're doing that's new, that's different, and, at some point you have to say, okay, this is, this is too, a bridge too far, and we can't put this in front of them and ask our customers, and, and that's different, I think, for each of our breweries. Yeah. I'll tell. So uh, one anecdote, we make a beer called, it's, a, it's basically an English-style bitter uh, with Earl Grey tea and lemon peel that we've made probably since 2014 or 2015. And the original name of this beer was Bergamot Special Bitter. It was a three-barrel pub batch, six-barrel pub batch, and it was an Earl Grey tea you know, kind of flavored beer. And uh, you know, this is back in the salad days, 2016, 2017. Eventually that beer got popular enough where there was enough draft interest in it where we were doing like 60 barrel batches at production of an English bitter with Earl Grey tea. And we were putting it out. And the first year we did it, Bergamot special bitter, BSB, it sold great. The next year it did okay. The next year it kind of dropped off. And, part of the feedback we got from our wholesaler was like, oh, this beer's not, you know, the name is really bad. Bergamot Special Bitter doesn't work. And I proposed that we call it Earl Grey IPA. And the, my business partner, uh, Breakside's founder, said, he's like, no, 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 we can't do that. Like IPA is too, that that term for Breakside has too much equity, like, are the person who buys Wanderlust or breaks at IPA or one of these other beers that we make in that category, if they get this, they're gonna be very upset and we're gonna be making withdrawal on their kind of goodwill. Someone else might be able to have pulled that off. But for us, it was like, oh, this is where we can't quite do that same thing. So, you know, it's this kind of constant balance and we end up calling it tea time pale ale. And, you know, now it's back to a pub beer size version. because so I just don't think there's that much interest in the type of beer for the marketplace, but separate conversation. But I think you're gonna constantly find yourself in this kind of like uh seesaw position where you're trying to figure out what have I built that my customer depends on. And when I innovate with something, how much am I willing to ask them to try something new that isn't what they want. And I know I'm taking, this is a long answer to this, but I'm gonna say one last thing. The thing that can help the most in all of this is having great servers. And we haven't talked about front of house at all, but I think that front of house is the unsung hero of building trends. It's convincing the people who walk in the door to try something different. It's convincing people who walk in the door to feel welcome. And it's the way that you get new beers in front of your longtime customers and get them excited about new things.
2: Yeah, I'll just kind of piggyback off what Ben's saying there um, and kind of pick up of, on and what I was kind of talk, speaking about earlier with um, how things move from experiment, uh, experiments at the pub on a seven-barrel batch to here on a 30-barrel batch. Um, currently, the way it works is... Um, we use a, um, a paid software program, which is fantastic. I really recommend it. It's called Draught Lab. Draft Lab. No, it's D-R-A-U-G-H-D. <laughs> oh, shit, Jamie, you're being a smart ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is Draft Lab. we had Lindsay know. from Draft Lab on, on the podcast. <laughs> I, I'm that asshole that just has to correct you. I'm that guy. I'm so sorry. Oh my I'm God. so sorry. You're the best, dude. Yeah. Why don't, why don't yeah, you go yeah. back and just say... You know what? Never mind. No, 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 no. 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 <laughs>
2: we're
0: we're going to back this up. We're going to edit all of that out. No one's going to hear it. You just start by saying, we use a software called Draft Lab." You just do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, just a... Uh, no, I'm not doing that. Sorry. Do it, do
0: it, do it. No, no, we no, no. You do this no, all no, the time. No. Come on, nope. James.
2: <laughs> so um, JotLab is a, a really uh, fantastic software program. <laughs> And uh, one thing I want to say about draught lab <laughs> uh, is that we use it all throughout our um, our company so front of house servers use it, um, Brewers use it. Um, we have a few Cicerone tasters um, in our in our company. so um, we're able to really get a pretty well rounded Feedback on any beer that is not only produced at the R&D Alberta pub, but also here at the production pub, uh, a production facility. And what we're looking for here uh, with production is consistency, right? We're looking for a product that is similar uh, experience from batch to batch. Uh, What we're looking for at our R&D facility is... Is it worth scaling up from seven barrels to thirty barrels right like what's the feedback what's the data on on this um seltzer uh with pandan right like like what do people think about it well, for example, that one did really well um and that will move into production. So for us, that looks like getting our so, work so, started. Sorry, do you mind
1: if I ask that? How did it do well? What was the metric you looked for? Where, uh, where we, was the tipping point to say yes?
2: Yeah, yeah, so two things. We use the, the software panel um, feedback from, from our company. Um, we have about 20 tasters um, who are submitting feedback. And then, the rest of it is untapped, feedback from untapped.
1: So, so are you looking for a... Um,
2: a
0: number? Yeah, a number? Yeah, o- over four. With DraftLab, and, and that's so interesting to use DraftLab in that kind of way, because for a lot of breweries, especially larger production breweries, they're using that same software you know, to, to make true to brand, not true to brand decisions, you know, and focus on consistency first and foremost. Yeah, sure.
2: I mean, I realize we're not in the same position as as a startup brewery where we have an R and D facility and a production facility. Um, it does grant us a lot of leeway with experimentation and a process to to build beers from the ground up. And and um, the Draft Lab software has been a, a good tool um, to get internal feedback on beers. And um, yeah, and and what we really care about is the public response. Um, we want to brew what people want to drink. Um, you know, it would be pretty egotistical to just like make what you like (laughs) and not give a shit about what the general public, um, wants. It's a balancing act, right? You like, we were talking about identity earlier. And, um, you have to know who you are and what you want to do. Um, you can tell people what's good. Um, people do it all the time like with ugly cars and stuff that, that like, this is what you should buy. Um, you know, sales and marketing is a big part of of, of something, but if you really believe in, in what you're doing, um, then there's that component, right? And then the public response component is really important too, right? Like if you have like 5,000 check-ins on untapped and the beer is sitting at three, five, Um, I think it needs some work. The recipe needs some work. And then you have to ask yourself, is it worth renaming the beer? And usually I would say it is worth renaming the beer, creating a new brand with, um, that you can potentially have higher, uh, ratings because it's just the environment that we're in. People care about, um, untapped ratings. How, how do you guys feel about that? I'm curious.
1: There's no way this is going to come out, right? Uh, yeah i probably don't look at them enough um it's not that i discount them but i just i I think where we are as a company right now we're focused on a lot of other things and uh yeah i should probably take your advice and be uh be using them as a, a metric that uh we use to make decisions more so it's it's nice to hear that from you
0: let's take a few questions out there does anybody have questions for this panel right now the question there is, how do you balance, you know, your own drive and creativity versus the response from the customer, yeah. you know, and find a, a middle ground between those two?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say, like, uh, do some really small batch trials if you can, um, whether it's in a glass or in a keg, and and see what your your friends and your staff think about it, um, and. See what they think about the idea in general right like like what Ben's talking about it doesn't sound like it would work <laughs> honestly um but like, sure enough, it does right and and that's how it we like weird ingredients are like that like you have to um be willing to take a chance, and um if you believe in it like if you really feel- if you're feeling it, you know then you just, you just do it, you just do it. You make a batch and um, see what the response is and maybe you make it again and maybe you never make it again. Do <laughs> you know, right, that's the only way. You gotta try it. Yeah, and it's not that much of a loss. I mean, you, there's ways of fixing beers that don't taste right. Like if you, if, if you, if you um, over flavor a batch or, um, you know, there's some headroom in the tank, you can always water back Right, um, You could always dump a little and add another beer to blend. There, you can totally fix beers. Um, I've done a lot of that.
0: <laughs> Matt? That's a great question. His question is, how do you train that front of house and build that connection? I mean, especially when you're talking about breweries that are making a lot of new beers all of the time, conveying that information that enthusiasm and giving them the tools, like you've mentioned, Ben, to connect with your your customers and help them sell these beers and get customers excited about it. That's a challenge. How do you, how do you go about doing that and keep that information flow and that energy and the excitement uh, conveyed through them?
1: Yeah, I think I've, Von Ebert definitely uh, has had a, a long road to get where we are in that respect. I think that where we started seeing some real improvement was not just focusing on training individual people but establishing systems and having training programs and having things written and having steps that people go through during onboarding and then having uh rewards with uh you know trying to do you know using uh, I think James had mentioned the um uh, Cicerone program earlier employing things like that. Uh, r- rather than just focusing on one person and saying, hey, we need to get this person to be able to, you know, describe a beer a certain way, I think t- taking a, a much larger view um, has, has paid dividends.
3: From my point of view, we try and give our staff a lot of opportunities to plug in informationally, right? So, there's a uh, master document that we call final beer specs, you know? and. This is the name, this is the style, you're gonna say this is the ABV, this is the BU, these are the descriptors we're gonna use, this is what goes in the printed menu. Do we require that people use it in a certain way? No, right, that's one piece of information. There's a sell sheet that has food pairings and a little bit more backstory about the beer. There's emails that go when we circulate any new beer, whether it be a pub beer, we circulate changes. So we try and give staff at the kind of informational level um, a lot of ways to figure out how to talk about those beers in their own voice. Within that though, there still is a priority where like the best servers end up being people who are able to push different beers to different customers. And there's kind of a, there's a hospitality piece that's completely divorced from the beers that just has to be a basic baseline. Like if you're a server at Breakside that doesn't like putting samples in front of people, you're not gonna get the bar shifts, you know? Like there's just not an attitude. Like the attitude has to be, we want the beer in front of you. And those are the, so I think you have, you train hospitality on the one side and you get really excellent hospitality folks in those positions. And then on the other side, you give them lots of opportunities to figure out how to learn about the beers and let them then in their own voice sell those beers. And you know, our bartenders are smart. They're not robots also. Like they see how if Sam's behind the bar and I'm behind the bar with him or James behind the bar, and these guys are selling a shit ton of some beer that I can't move for anyone. I'm gonna listen to how they're moving this to people. How, what are they saying that's persuasive? So there's this kind of like contagion about it in the best of ways contagion to (laughs) move, to like do that. So I I think that those, but I I do think those are your two poles, train hospitality and then give people lots of ways to plug into information and not just one system.
0: Juno, Juno Choi from BSG, you got a question. New trendy processes or techniques that you all are you know keeping an eye on or starting to employ right now at this time I just wanted to really quick uh, I just wanted to
2: say that we have a director of quality control um at great ocean, and that's a really important role that we finally have um configured in within our company and um this this position gives an opportunity um, to do tasting notes on every beer that's released, from um, the conception, the idea behind the beer, to uh, aroma, flavor, tasting notes. And all of this information um, is shared with everyone in the company through Slack. And it really gets everyone on the same page, um, and it also allows um, our, our staff to actually taste the beer and and review the tasting notes, and that's how we're able to to answer the previous question really make sure that our servers know what's up right so that they're they have a very strong understanding of of, of what is in a glass in in front of them um, yeah so to your question do you mean um like Social trends more so. Uh, Are there some process trends
0: trends in the brew house? You know, whether like Juno mentioned, dip hopping or other new ways of maybe using hops or even using other ingredients. uh, You know, in your technique that you're finding are producing some pleasurable or more intense or more favorable flavors as as you use them. Any of those techniques that uh, you could might suggest some experimentation for other brewers to try using.
2: Is that kind of what you meant? Cool. Jamie's got it. Yeah, um, I'm very curious about the agricultural impact of hop farming and um, ways that we can uh, minimize that. There's also an environmental impact of 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 hops, right? Like they weigh a lot; they get shipped all over the world, and um, there's a lot of fossil fuels being used. You know, shipping thousands and thousands of pounds of hops from New Zealand or Australia to the United States, right? Like, um, processing hops, I think, is really going to be the future of of craft beer, in my in my opinion. I, I see a day where we actually don't use any vegetal material whatsoever in beer. I, I think it will all be terpenes. I think it'll be hop oils. And just like the cannabis industry is dialing this stuff in just in a very short period of time, um, the... The hop companies are chasing right behind the cannabis companies and the technology and the processing of hops, and that we will be able to make 100% liquid hop beer um, without vegetal material whatsoever, and also without the environmental impact of shipping hops all over.
0: Ben or Sam, do you guys have some techniques that you've been playing with? That you've, I, I think that's very, that's a brilliant and beautiful way to put that.
3: I was gonna jokingly say that whatever Sam says is what we do now too. Uh, <laughs> would So I'm gonna make a piece, you know at 12 years in for our company, the area that's improving flavor the most for us as a mainly IPA house is investing more money and time that we probably could have done and not a lot of cost. And this is why I wanna bring it up in this setting, in yeast health. And I think that like, I really, as, as, so we've started pitching more yeast, and our yields are up. We've dry hopped more, and our yields are up because we have healthier yeast. I think that like the return on investment on really making sure that you have viable, vital, and sufficient count of yeast in tank—that's is like I know it's like it's it's textbook, right? You were told this in brewing 101, but most people just don't do it. There are world-class GABF and World Beer Cup winning breweries who do not have microscopes. And that's a dumb <laughs> <laughs> paradox, right? Like they like your beer will be way better if you invest in yeast health and you'll get more beer out of tank. You'll get more out of your hops. Your aromas will be smothered by fewer things you'll have less distracting, secondary yeast metabolites and aromatics. And it's something that like, I'm really saying this in part for myself, It's like, holy shit, it's taken us 12 years to get this point where we really, really value this. But the returns are real high, y'all. And um, yeah, I, I would just say that like, in addition to whatever novel processing Juno there may be out there or additional fat, like, you know, if you have to dry hop at five and a half pounds per barrel to make your hoppy beer smell good, you probably have some yeast issues that you're hiding, right? And I think that like, you know, I'm not suggesting that you can get away with 1.2 pounds per barrel or anything like that. That's a separate conversation. But I really just think that like the doubling down on yeast health from day one in your brewery with a microscope, a salometer, vitality assays, viability assays, will- Production flow. And production flow to manage yeast healthfully Will pay dividends in terms of quality, and aroma intensity, and lack of flaws, and high quality beer that's just like impossible to replicate with any secondary product.
2: Yeah, I, I, I just want to say that like brewing beer without counting yeast, you know, without having a microscope and counting yeast is the equivalent of selling weed without a scale.
1: <laughs> Dude, and you, you would never do that. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so get a microscope.
1: Yeah, it's great. I, I'm not going to add a ton to this. Um, just to um, expand on that production flow comment, I do think that's something really important to think about, especially with uh, what size brewery you're putting in. If you think, oh, I'm only going to brew you know, once every two weeks, it's going to be a real small operation and romantic. Uh, there's a lot of negatives to that with the yeast health. So uh, take that into account. All right, and I, I hope that on the yeast panel one of the, this morning, you know, I know uh, Greg was
3: the director of quality, was on that panel. I hope one of the things he said is like, hey, if you're going into a marketplace where there's a big brewery who can give you yeast, take it from them, Yeah. right? Yeah. Do that. They're going to have healthier yeast than
1: you will. Yep. And then, and then uh, sorry, to, to echo what James said, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, sorry, I, like 90% agree with you. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to the point where we're brewing with all uh, hot products. I do think there's a... A lot of things that um you know just vegetal matter does add to west coast iPAs but I don't know maybe if you're brewing all hazy iPAs then it doesn't matter uh but I do think the the hot products that are coming out are um you know essential to uh everything that you had mentioned yeah, yeah and they're exciting, but super too. important you know they're
2: fun to check out, like get
0: samples, you know, experiment in your glass, Sure, sure, we have time for one more question, one more. what do you think a style is? Beyond what is trendy, what is a style? I would
2: just say it's what's in your glass. (laughs) Like, what did you buy? Like, what did you spend your money on? Like, why did you choose that item on the menu? That's a question for for every consumer to ask themselves, like out of 15 beers or whatever on the menu, like why choose that one? (laughs) To you, that's the most appealing, and appeal is trend,
0: right? I think we could back out of that and say, how important is it, you know, because really when you talk about style, it's a way to connect people who don't know something about something with something that they do know something about. Like style is a way to go from what we do know to what we don't know. And it's a way to build some continuity there and some confidence Mm. that help people connect to something, you know, and, and certainly I've talked to brewers over the years, you know, I, you know Peter from Purpose, you know, uh, Peter Burkhardt, who was with New Belgium, like is a dead opponent of the idea of style and is dead set against even using that as a way to describe beer because he finds it constricting. Mm. But at the same time, there are plenty of consumers that say, fruited sour beer, that's a style. I connect, I know I like that, and I've had other examples that I like. And that might predict that I will like this beer. And so it becomes a way to connect between what the... IPA, you know, is that way to go from something I think I... Now, of course, those things have gotten very blurry.
2: Yeah. Um, what about, like, the style guidelines, right? Do, do we take those into consideration, BJCP? You tell me. Do you? Uh, so when I moved to Portland in 20,
3: 2007, there for whatever reason around in 2011 or so, like Kolsch yes. became something that people could sell in Portland and no one in the country cared about Kolsch, right, this is not, there's no, you know, and this is, pretty, this is the pre-untapped days, but I think that like a lot of this can be attributed to one brewery making Kolsch, having a pretty good marketing push behind it and then other people within the community kind of trying to amplify that and insofar as then that influenced, you know, maybe a small segment of drinkers here in the Northwest, Pilsner and a number of other pale lagers followed and sell in a much better way than I think, in a much easier way than they do elsewhere in the country. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to Double Mountain rolling out Colch in 2008, 2009, whenever that was, right? But I think that this is where, when we think about style and trend, like looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how are you differing from the breweries who are right near how are you creating your personal stamp but also when do you jump on the bandwagon and try and amplify something that is a kind of community you can actually start to move in a significant way and sometimes it falls on its face cascadian dark ale anyone you know like yeah, okay actually maybe that's happening hey, hey trends uh but like, you know, I, I think that like in the Northwest, Czech dark lager is a somewhat meaningful term in part because there's like eight breweries who started making it, or there's two, and then like eight more jumped on the bandwagon. You know, you have semi-competent versions of this being brewed. So in that way, like sometimes style salience can be defined by what others in your own community are doing. And that's gonna differ whether you're coming from Canada, Florida, you know, wherever else in the country that you're, you're trying to open this
0: brewery all right all right well thank you guys for joining me james sam ben it's been fun to talk about trendy styles styles in general both from a thoughtful and principled kind of approach as well as some pragmatic uh, executions um thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today cheers thank thanks Hope you enjoyed this first ever live recording of the craft beer and brewing podcast and just a reminder to send me your audio questions from neil fisher of weldworks for our tuesday episode two weeks from now j bogner at beerandbrewing.com j b-o-g-n-e-r at beerandbrewing.com just record that audio snippet with your question and identify yourself and send it my way Accubrew gives brewers unprecedented real-time insight into yeast health and activity since 1847, raw Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. And for nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Support this podcast by going to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. I'll be back on Friday with Nick Panchemay of Holmes Brewery and Smooge Hard Seltzer. And if you want more information about future Brewery Workshop events, head to breweryworkshop.com.